This one? Yeah. Okay. Uh. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I am uh, one of uh, your hosts, Preston. Dimitri Lash. Find me on Preston. Instagram at D-I-M-I-T-R-Y-L-A-S-H. Uh, Luke, go ahead and introduce yourself. Well, I am the co-host. My name is Luke Byler. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Luke underscore Byler 816. That's B-Y-L-E-R 816. And you can also find the Belfast Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram at the Belfast Podcast. And we also have a Gmail if you want to connect with us there. But that one's just BelfastPodcast at gmail.com. What a segue. What a plug. Was the Belfast Podcast already taken? Uh, I don't remember. Oh, boy. Brand um, consistency, Luke. I'm all about it. Uh, I mean, I can create another one. It's I mean, <laughs> it's fine. It's whatever. It just kind of seems like you're set on BelfastPodcast at gmail.com anyway. So, um. Luke, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about the Reformation. Where are we starting? So Martin Luther, Yep. obviously, I feel like a lot of people who are listening to this podcast should know who Martin Luther is. I feel like everyone should. I learned about it him in a lot of detail when I was in high school. Martin Luther, this guy who grows up in the church. Actually, he starts in law school. Yeah, and then he became a monk. Yeah, and then became a monk because... Uh, he hated law school, apparently. And he loved talking about salvation. Yeah. He got struck by lightning, actually. That's how he got saved, was he prayed to St. Anne when he got struck by lightning that if he lived, he would, like, become a monk. And he lived and became a monk. What a conversion story. What a conversion story. Um, You hear a lot of those things where it's like, hey, man, if I survive this, I'll become a Christian. Uh, who's that guy uh, on the Unbreakable movie? Um, the what's his face? He like ran in the Olympics, and then got like drafted the un- into World War Two. The, the Unbreakable movie. Yeah, you never seen that? Oh, uh, uh, he has kind of a like a like a fun name. Um, are you thinking about that, or are you thinking about? Oh no no no! I was thinking about somebody else. Um, Were you thinking about the Bruce Willis movie? No, 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 no. I was thinking about Chariots Fire for a second. <laughs> but he did run in the Olympics. Oh and my then God! Went to China. Kill me. Um, Japan. No, I do not. I do not know the name of the guy. From oh my gosh! Is gonna kill me. Uh, unbreakable movie. Okay, hold on, hold on. Wait. Unbreakable. No, that is the Bruce Willis movie. World War II. Oh, no, that's... Crap, dude. It's unbroken. Unbroken. God dang it. I knew it was wrong. Um, Louis Zamperini. That's who I was thinking of. Unbreakable was the Bruce Willis movie, though. So I was half right. Uh... similar conversion story to Martin Luther. (laughs) Now that we're hopping back around to it. (laughs) Off the rails there for a second. Yeah, but Martin Luther was was a monk, and he had a lot of problems. 95 to be exact. I got 95 problems. Don't. (laughs) (laughs) With the Catholic Church. With the Catholic Church's, more specifically their indulgence policy. Yeah. Um, but let's before we 
go to the 95 because I, but I don't even know what the, all the 95 are. I'd be really curious to see the list. But um, I think a little context about the power of that the Catholic Church held is important to understand the some of the issues that Luther was dealing with. Um, so the Catholic Church had a lot of political and social influence as well as religious because the Catholic Church owned about a third of the land in England. Um, I think it's Europe. Or in, was it all across Europe? I'm pretty sure it's all across Europe because they're Roman, so I don't know why. I mean, and he wasn't in England. You're right. He's a German. Yeah, yeah. so that that would be correct. So a third of the land across Europe. Um, they had, there was that weird thing that went on all throughout the history of the Catholic Church where it was, kind of the the pope and the cardinals and the higher-ups in the church were always affiliated with the king, and the king was always affiliated with the church. So there was that, like, divine monarchy thing going on. A lack of separation between church and state. Yeah. Which is, I mean, partly why we see the need between separation of church and state now in America is because of this sort of idea that the Catholic Church was pulling strings when it came to the Holy Roman Emperor. I mean, it's called the Holy Roman Emperor because the emperor was chosen by the Pope Mm -hmm. through what the Catholic Church outlined as divine intervention in politics, which is funny. Have you seen the new Netflix documentary called The Family? I've seen the trailer, and I'm curious. I am, too. I don't know how I feel about it. I don't know if I want to watch it or not. It seems kind of weird. Uh, I don't know. But it seems very similar to how the Roman Catholics, like, influenced the the, like, monarchy. the monarchy of England and, more importantly, Rome. Again, because it's called the Holy, Holy Roman Emperor, so. Needless to say... The the Catholic Church and the kings had a lot of power and influence and overlapped in many, many ways. Um, and that bled into how the church interacted with the peasants and with those below and those who didn't have as much. Um, and one of those specifically was indulgences. And I think that that's, that's the classic one, but we can go there because um, it is important to understand kind of the sway and the influence the church was holding and what, how they used their money. Well, I mean, the 95 Thesis is a specific response to the indulgences that Martin Luther then doubled down on when he was called before the Diet of Worms, as it were. Yes. In Wittenberg. Uh, But the indulgence policy, and I guess I'll go over this, is like the Pope, the, the problem with the Catholic Church at the time that people found was that the Pope had all authority over people's souls. Mm hmm. And so with that, like, because they're eternal, people really got hung up on like, okay, well, I need the Pope to like bless me, to bless my soul, to bless my family's souls, because at the time purgatory was a very prominent belief 
in the Catholic Church. And so these indulgences were, they were written on, I don't remember the exact quote, something about the Pope like shining down on your soul or something like that. I don't, I don't really care. But it's like this idea that you would buy this piece of paper for you and or someone else in your family and that would lessen their time in purgatory for the forgiveness of their sins but the problem was is that these indulgences cost like half a year's wages of some of these working class families and so these like poor people would be going poor just so that their sons their daughters their husbands their wives or even themselves would like be able to spend less time in purgatory and theologically Martin Luther had been vocated, you know, called to like really look and like unravel what it means to be saved and like mm -hmm. salvation. And so he had a really big issue with the fact that like this salvation would come from this piece of paper. Yeah. Or, or you could buy, you could like buy salvation out of purgatory, basically. Right. Was like, you know, when you were getting at this, is like the argument that the church was having was like, hey, these people are in purgatory. But. It's like the kind of like the last rites idea, but for purgatory. And it's like, hey, if you pay us money, then the priest will like basically give last rites to the soul that's in purgatory so then they can go to heaven. But hey, don't forget, you got to pay us money. And so it was like this scheme that used the fear of like, oh my gosh, how similar does this sound to some of our evangelism today? Oh my gosh! I won't get to spend eternity with my family members. I better buy them out of purgatory because they need to be in heaven when I go there. And here's what's scary is, and they'll get to this later, is that the Bible was not readily available for the average believer mm -hmm. because the way the Catholic Church was set up is there's priests and parishes, and that these priests and parishes would be. Literate. Oh, and it was only in Latin. It was only in Latin, so your priest and parish would be specifically trained to be scribes to be literate in the latin language while you in germany or in france or in england did not have that same luxury of being literate in latin even maybe less so than your own language mm -hmm. uh and, and just, we didn't have gutenberg hadn't invented the printing press correct yet. yeah 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 so, so books were very, very expensive and very, very not hard even to come books. By. Like you, I mean, there's probably a lot of people at this time that, you know, these working class families that are buying indulgences that probably aren't even literate themselves in the language that they spoke. No, yeah, exactly. So but, it's a huge issue that they're controlling what translation the Bible is in, and that they get to feed the information to the people however they see fit, and. Yeah. And make it fit their frame. Correct. And then they can profit from that, quite literally. Right. Because there's a monopoly on biblical analysis. Yes. And the supply is low and the demand is high. So that means they can charge whatever they want to for whatever they want to say. Um, and really, I mean, this is the problem. I mean that we see a lot in history is that it's not that the church is necessarily inherently evil. It's that it, there's a very like mankind 
there's this humanity to it where we see like, oh man, like there are ways that it has overstepped its bounds because you never really see this in judges. Do you like, you never hear of the church and judges like this, this like theocracy being led by God, by these judges. You never hear of them like overstepping their bounds, Mm -hmm. like financially like oppressing people because they are the only way to get to God. Like you see them doing what they're called to do to that point. You never hear of like Samuel being like, all right, well, God told me you all have to give me $5 monopoly style. Like you never really hear that because like it's a theocracy. They're like fully trusting in God. Mm -hmm. If we want to use the term, they're like eating of the tree of life instead of the knowing of good and evil. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Catholic Church. But even <laughs> even when you see, I'm thinking about go back, back, back in the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible when it talks about. Uh, you could argue that um, is it? Uh, oh my gosh, I'm getting my names mixed up now. Um, Moses, in some sense, is the first judge yeah. of Israel because he, when they're in the wilderness. Or after they've been exiled, when they're wandering, right? He starts to judge, you know, dealings between people, and then God says, "Hey, promote like promote all you know judges from the different tribes, and you need your father-in-law to help you and all that stuff." So there's another example we see in the Hebrew Bible of judges, and but the, again, he's not trying to monopolize his power. He's happy to give his power away, right? Which I think that is key like we were saying there's monopoly on interpretation and there is a abuse and an unwillingness to let go of power yeah and i mean even like samuel was a good example to go back to him like he's upset that not necessarily he has to give up power but that the power is shifting from the theocracy and the judges to a king and like god even instructs him like listen they're not rejecting you they're rejecting me yeah so we're going to let this happen because I'm not to be rejected. They'll see why through the entire Old Testament. But So bring it back to Martin Luther. What we're seeing in the Catholic Church in his time is definitely nothing that is necessarily biblical. No. And the ways in which it is implemented is very uh, dishonest and is for selfish gain, mm-hmm. specifically with indulgences. And I have a quote here from Luther um, that I think nicely sums up his issue with indulgences and the idea of buying salvation or gaining salvation um, through a method like that. He says, so, um, so this is Luther's quote. He says, salvation comes through faith, not good works, not through fasting, vigils, pilgrimages, giving to the poor, the sacraments, or any action a person can take. We can never be good enough through our action to merit salvation. We can only have faith. Which is fairly wild for the time because this is in the early 16th century, late 16th century. Yeah. And it ends in 1517, which I just looked at, which is, I think the Reformation kind of ends around 1517, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And... It's funny as the Catholic Church doesn't actually stop officially selling indulgences until 1567. So a full 50 years later, they then look back and go, you know what? I don't like this. 
which I mean, it just speaks to it, like how radical it was for someone to like go up against the Catholic Church. And I mean, we can talk not about- because they were right, but because they had power. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's fun. I mean, we've had conversations apart from the podcast, but I mean, the Catholic Church isn't inherently bad. No, there's a lot of things we like about the Yeah, there's a lot of things we like about the Catholic Church, but I think in history it's meant out to be this boogeyman and it gives a foothold for people to say, well, the Catholic Church is obviously wrong in history. There's no doubt the Catholic Church in this sense is definitely in the wrong and definitely need to be corrected. And it gives people a foothold for disbelief to look at how the current state of Western churches run now that it has issues that are formed from the reformation that still exists today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And let's not, let's not be wrong. There's issues that were created because of the reformation. Right. One of which being this like denominational, like open market. Cause now like, and we'll go back to, yeah. Okay. And we, we can get to, some of the reasons for that. Right. Which I think were good things that happened. Yes, they're great things. Like uh, the Gutenberg Press invented Martin Luther. Translated the Bible into a common German. Yes. The New Testament, I should say. Yes. The Old Testament was still yet to be translated, which mm-hmm. uh, I had a conversation with someone earlier this week about uh, the Old, like the New Testament, like when you're handed a Bible and it's just the New Testament plus like Proverbs and stuff, Proverbs mm-hmm. and Psalms or whatever they like do for that. And he was like, if you read the New Testament alone, it's just good enough, but like barely good enough by itself. Like the New Testament will get you a good like foot in the door. But yeah. if that's all you're reading as a Christian, like you are missing massive chunks about like what your faith really is. And like, you're missing the history, right? You're missing the history of it, which I mean, you can, uh, there's plenty of stories of people who come to faith, like just by reading one of the gospels. Correct. Yeah. You know, because, because that's the good news. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's called news for a reason. Yeah. Um, S- I mean, so not just advice to say that like, well, just because it's the new Testament doesn't necessarily mean that like now you have this gap of like between the Catholic church and like when the New Testament's printed, that it's like, well, we have a bunch of like just wandering Christians. But mm-hmm. I think that is interesting now that I'm like stumbling into it is like without the Old Testament, there's a lot of this theology that breaks off because now everyone gets the Bible that now everyone is able to come up with their own lens in which they view it. Yeah. Which is not a bad thing because, I mean, me and you are both real big on individual vocation and individual, like, interpretation, study study and interpretation. But what you had then is that when, like, Luther came out, then you have John Calvin coming Mm -hmm. up with Calvinism. Mm -hmm. And then they start fighting each other because they're like, well, I believe in double predestination. And Luther's like, well, I don't really do that. And so then you have his these two following groups. And then you have the Anabaptists come mm-hmm. in and then they're like, well, we don't believe like baptism should, it, it should only be for people who understand fully what they're doing. And then like you have, you know, and you have different views on communion and is it really the sacraments yeah. versus, uh, 
what's the other one? Consubstantiation, transubstantiation. And then there's another view that's like, it's pure. One of them is like, it is the body and blood. One of them, it is, um, it is like wine and bread, but it also is the body. And then one is, it's just bought, just wine and bread, but they're symbols. And so, like, even with something like that might sound trivial to us now, but like those are huge deals. Right. And because for the, know, the first 15, time, people are able to understand the different viewpoints. They're not yeah. just getting fed one thing and this is the one thing alone and you'll never be able to know whether or not it's true because you can't read the Bible. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's just, it's like hard because like there's a lot of good things that come out of it. There's a lot of like, things that today we're still wrestling with as like a church because of the reformation. One of which being that Luther, and I mean, we're going to probably have somebody on to talk about this, but the new perspective, Luther really perpetuates this idea that like the war between him and the Catholic church mirrors the war and that Paul has with the Jews, which is not a war. It's no, which is like, but he builds that rhetoric to where, I mean, Martin Luther is like a very big anti-Semite at the time. Yeah. And it builds... A, his, Especially late late in his life. Yes. It builds this rhetoric of Lutherans that like Judaism is a works-based religion and thusly it is inferior to the Christian lifestyle. Which is something a lot of, uh, a lot of Christians, I won't just say evangelicals, but I think a lot of Christians believe. Think about like... Because that's how we... That's the narrative we're fed. And I guess here's the... Here's I think maybe some big stuff that like is part of like what's going on in the Reformation and what Luther fights. And I think what we're starting to see now, now I'm not going to claim that we're in like another Reformation, although, and I can draw some parallels here in a second, but um, just like, I lost my thought. I had a bunch of other train cars going different directions. Um, What was I going to say? Oh my goodness. Uh, uh Oh, the narrative that like lo- that like everybody's fed because of the Catholic Church is just wholly accepted because it's the only one they have. Right. And then when somebody fights that, A, it's a shock, and B, people are like, oh, you can actually say that? Right. Like, we can do that? You can have a problem with the Catholic Church and post it and stand by it? And like, one thing, as much as, you know, Luther did some great stuff and we got to have great admiration for him. On the other hand, there was some other stuff where we're like, bro, what was your issues? But it's like, I don't think we need to lose sight. We can't lose sight of the fact that this man literally stood up to the biggest institution in the world and said, you're wrong. Right. It's very similar to, and I'm just doing, cause what I thought about as we're talking about the anti-Semitism, right? How much of that being Luther being German attributed to the Nazi rhetoric of World War II? A lot. Right. At least, at least the stu- some of the stuff he wrote near the end of his life. Near the end of his life because it could be so easily twisted to, and I'm reading it just right now, but what you're talking about is how Martin Luther stood up to the Catholic Church is almost similar in the sense that Dietrich Bonhoeffer stood up to the Nazi church as the confessing church Mm -hmm. in World War II. Yes. 
And I mean, obviously, a lot of these people paid dearly for it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer with his life. And there were a lot of Protestant people, uh, definitely the Anabaptists at the time that were like. Yeah, dis- there were so many wars inside of Christianity and right. Catholicism going on. Yeah, because they literally could not decide about what baptism should mean. So that mean that meant that people like professing wrong news had to die. You also see like John Calvin's big thing is that like when this Protestant Reformation came through and people are being persecuted in these certain areas of Europe that they ended up just like being silent and just kind of living out their faith in this sort of underground thing. And John Calvin didn't believe that. Yeah. But John Calvin is also in Geneva, Switzerland running this compound esque like like autocracy where he's like the head guy it's really bizarre like that like we think of john calvin with all these views and stuff and then he also like kind of led this really weird like cult-esque thing in geneva switzerland until he died i didn't know about that really no yeah he like i knew nothing about he ran a community of like uh calvinists Mm -hmm. and he was like kind of the head guy and like i think he was either like excommunicated from the community because his like views started getting like too towards the end of his life as well like because i feel like the issue is that when you're a luther when you're a, a calvin when you're a you know gosh what's the other names of i doesn't matter but like you start having to double down on them towards the end of your life because this is your life's work yeah I don't think you like, mean the men themselves. Yes, absolutely. Because it's like, like you changing your mind is too much. It's too much. You can't change your mind. You can't like walk back a little bit what you've said if you're Luther, because then that D like substantiates a yeah. lot of what you've said to begin with. Yeah. And so for Luther, I mean, it's not right, but it's understandable why he became such an anti-Semite if his contradictions he felt were like Paul in the Jewish church. Yeah. You would have to, I mean, you if you were really going to double down, you'd have to make that connection. You would have to sell out to it 100%, which is really dangerous. Like, you see a lot of pastors now doing that stuff, like Rob Bell. Like, yeah, you see him, like, make comments about universalism or the LGBT community. And instead of being like, okay, like, let me walk back and explain myself, it's let me jump to the extremes. Yeah. And so, like, now you have his book about universalism or annihilationism, which is the most, like, polar... Like, his choices in the book are, like, polar opposites. Yeah. And that's where he gets the most flack from. Like, you've chosen the two worst options. Either my life on Earth is meaningless and I can live it however I want, or my life is of infinite importance and every decision I make could lead me to annihilation. Is like, the way it boils down. But of course, like Rob Bell, like he has to say that stuff because like if I walk back what I've said before as a pastor, it makes it feel like I haven't been preaching the truth. I think this makes an interesting discussion about once you stand so firmly on something, how hard is it, especially if you're a public figure in whatever form, how hard is it to then go back on what you said? How hard would it be for somebody like George W. Bush to look back and be like, maybe Homeland Security like overstepped its bounds with like the NSA and all that kind of stuff? Like, and to think about like maybe Barack Obama coming back and being like, hey, maybe 
my healthcare system, maybe Obamacare wasn't like as polished and as like great for everyone as I said it was, or it didn't turn out to be that way. Mm-hmm. I think, and and this is something because that takes a lot of humility. It does. But here's the thing about uh, is, uh, Scott McKnight was talking about this. Uh, I listened to his oh. sermon he gave about ten things he wished everyone knew when they read the Bible. That was good. And one of the reasons was he's like, we have to not be afraid to be wrong and to be called on it. Yeah. Like he was like, the idea about all of us reading the Bible is that like, we do get to like have our own interpretations through different translations, this, that, and the other. And he's like, to have the humility to be like, man, I was wrong. Like I had this theory, like when I read this verse, that like this prophecy was going to be fulfilled this way, you know, whatever your theology would lead you to believe in theory. And then someone else goes, that's not what that verse is saying at all. Here's the historical context. Like you have to be okay with being like, okay, like I read that wrong. I didn't have all the information, whatever the case may be. Yeah. It does take humility. So for Luther to be like, Hey, like now that I'm looking at it, like Paul's Paul was not trying to start a war with the Jewish church. Like he was really just trying to like watch his fellow Jewish brethren, brethren, little like go through the same kind of like faith that he was and to like accept a Messiah. Like it wasn't a war. It was more of a like calling to minister to them. It was, it was a call to, for broader inclusion into the family. Right. Exactly. That's what Galatians is about. It's not Paul versus Jews. Right. And so if Martin Luther would have come out later and been like, Hey, like now that I'm reading the scriptures again and again and again, like I can now see that like, that's what Paul was doing. Like you would have a lot less anti-Semitism Semitism in early Germany. Yeah, and he, I guess here's the here's the great uh, and difficult thing about I would say about here's the great thing about what Luther did for Scripture um, and for the Bible. Um, he pushed something that I think we all need to. Keep in mind, he pushed this idea of don't just take whatever you're fed by your church or your pastor Correct. or whoever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, and he said, let's go back to the Bible. What does the Bible say about this? Mm. And he's like, well, when I read the Bible, I don't see a, you know, as as he said in that quote, like salvation is through faith. You're not gonna, you can't buy your faith, right? Paul says again and again and again, it's the free gift that God gives us. Right, and it's by faith, not through works, not that anyone can boast, that you gain salvation. And so Luther was like, hey, I'm not just going to accept the rhetoric of the Catholic Church and these indulgences and all this stuff, because I want to sit and read the Bible. And more importantly, and I think the thing that we definitely need to praise him for, is he not only did that himself, but in translating the New Testament into German, common German, let's keep that in mind too, Right. Is like he because said, I want everybody thing. else to be able to do this. Right. I want everybody else. I want literacy to rise. I want people to be able to read the Bible. I want people to be able to understand what's being taught. I want people to to read the scripture. Solo scriptura. Scripture is the authority. Now we've taken that and made it something weird in the evangelical church, but that's maybe a different conversation. It anyway. It most certainly is. Anyway. Um, but I I think we need to definitely applaud him and say Yo, he was doing something that was super important and saying, hey, 
what is what does the Bible say about this? What does God have to say to us through the scriptures about what is going on, about what might be good and what might be faulty or even evil about what is happening in church? And he went back to the Bible and did that. And so that is great because I think we need to continually do that with fresh eyes. Every generation, I think, has to be able to go back to the Bible and say, hey, what is this really saying about X, Y, Z current issues? And I just don't want to accept the dogma of whoever I'm under because that's what they say. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But at the same moment, it also, like, creates this weird... I know we kind of talked about celebrity pastor the other day. Would we say that at least in, well, it's called the Reformation and we're called like a lot of a certain branch, I guess, is called like reformed. So it's like, would we say Martin Luther's like the first celebrity pastor in a sense? (laughs) I mean, he. Because, and here's where I'm going, because now we don't have people. What do people say? Oh, I'm Lutheran, or I'm a Calvinist, or I'm uh, a Molinist, or I'm a I'm a whatever. I'm a um, uh, an Arminianist. Those are all dudes' names that came up with these theories, right? So it's like it's in some sense. I think Luther would be super mad at us saying like, "You guys are only going back to what I was saying about what was happening." Right. And you aren't going back to the scriptures. Correct, you're just yeah. taking what I say as gospel when that's not even that's what I was fighting the Catholic Church on. So it's this weird mm. like cycle thing that's happening. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think people are just well, it's just kind of funny you say like Luther is the first like celebrity pastor where we're like so worried about like appeasing him. Like you're, and I think you're 100% right because my thing would be like to back it up even further, like the celebrity pastors at the time were the popes. Yeah. And now he's become somewhat of the pope for the Protestant church. Like, Yes, very much so. And I, yeah, I think that would disappoint him. And I think that is like an interesting point. And I mean, think about like David in scripture. Like David is like at best maybe the most human king of the three kings. Cause he like has like these times where he's like wrestling with God, but then he like kills a dude cause he like slept with his wife, you know, yeah. like things like that. Like we read that and it's, God's not saying like, you need to live your life exactly like David did. Mm-hmm. He's using David, this like imperfect human to show what the wrestle of faith is like. Mm-hmm. And I think Martin Luther, like if we view him in the same way, like not scripturally necessarily, but like there, here's a guy that, had a calling and sought through perhaps not always how he should have. Yes. And maybe perhaps out of corruption of like pride and less out of humility, like doubling down on the anti-Semitism and doubling down on some of the more, you know, dogmatic things he was trying to get across. But like, I think like at the level of it is like, man, if you're called to reform problems within the church if you are within that church like do it and i think we all are yeah like even as paul like we had a discussion with some one of our friend like because we were talking about like is it militant to like walk into jewish temples and talk and like tell jewish people that they're like worshiping wrong 
and like I think what we got at together was like yo like Paul wasn't doing that like it wasn't like me bursting down the door of like a modern day mosque and like telling them what they're doing is wrong it'd be like me walking into an elder meeting at this church me airing issues with them and telling them like I've been praying a lot and I don't think this is where the ministry should be headed yes it's a lot different because like Paul's church was the Jewish church. Yeah. And in he himself is self-admitted as like still being a Jew. Yeah. So he's like, he's never like taking his Jewish roots out of himself being like, well, now I'm a Christian guy. Like, no, no, no. He's a messianic Jew. Like he see, like he was met by the Messiah. And now he's like trying to tell these Jewish people, like I know now like what is true and you need to have this. Yes. In the same way that Martin Luther was like, really peeved off about the Catholic church because he himself was like a part of the Catholic church. And that was a whole diet of worms things. Like he like goes and they're like, you need to recant this because at the time, like he was a part of the church and like for you to be a part of the church, like you can't write these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, I can't recant. Therefore I will not recant. Yeah. It was like his whole thing. Yeah. But like, then they excommunicate him. Like, you're like, I believe in this so much. Like this is, this is the truth. And I'm no matter what you say or want to do to me, I am going to stand by it. Right. And the Catholic church was okay with excommunicating him at the time because they're like, well, this guy's not going to have any following. Like if we excommunicate him, he'll just die a normal Joe that like tried to, you know, change stuff. And he didn't like, we're still going to be the Catholic church. And now we talk about Martin Luther as like the guy who like, you know, kind of nailed the final like nail in the coffin in terms of the the Catholic Church's power. Y- power. They Yo, still. And what they, was what was that? I don't remember what chapter it's in, but the I, I just read it. Maybe it's maybe it's uh four chapter four or chapter five in Acts when Peter and uh is it Peter and Paul are before the Jewish Council. Is it like the false messiahs one? Yes. Yeah, totally. And there and then it's it names him. I don't have the scripture for me. It names he like names a fake messiah. Two of them. Or two of them. They came before and they're like, "Hey, this guy had followers and when he died, they all dispersed and they just went about their way." Right. And they were like, "So this messiah, this Jesus that they this Jesus of Nazareth, which I always find it so funny." Like, especially in that chapter of Acts, where whenever, like, consistently, consistently, consistently when they're referring to Jesus and when they're speaking about Jesus, they will say Jesus of Nazareth and be super specific, partially because Jesus wasn't an uncommon name, but also I think it was part of this, like, dig at the fact that he was from Nazareth. Right. You know what I'm saying? Because it's like, who was it? Was it Andrew that was like his brother comes and tells him like, dude, we found the Messiah. And he's like, he's from Nazareth. And he's like, what good thing comes out of Nazareth? <laughs> you know? Yeah. But they're like, no, Jesus of Nazareth. Don't forget, like that guy that you all thought was some nobody from nowhere. Right. He's the Messiah. And then. Or he very well could because look at how his followers still talk about him today. Exactly. And his and the the Pharisees point was basically like, hey, if he's not really who he says he was, if it didn't really happen, then like this thing's going to die off pretty soon. But don't be too quick to judge that because you right. might be going against God. Right. Was his words. And so 
in the same way, I kind of feel like that's what Luther's encountering at like the Diet of Worms is like, hey, you like, you need to recant this. And he's like, no, I'm not going to recant. And the church is like, okay, well, if he's If it's wrong, not meant to be, yeah, then it'll just die off. Yeah, exactly. But now the entire Western church is based off of Luther's like not recanting, mm-hmm. which is kind of wild, but... I I mean, it's kind of just funny just to see the biblical parallels in modern day issues as it was back then, like when the Acts of the Apostles were happening. Mm -hmm. It just goes to show like, like, like God doesn't change whether or not like the Catholic Church is in charge, whether or not Protestantism is like going over, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like God kind of like stays consistent in how he enacts his kingdom. Yeah. I think maybe, uh, and I'm going to go out on a limb here, and we weren't necessarily planning on talking about this, but I'm happy to go this direction. Um, If you look at some of the things that were going on when Luther and the Reformation happened, you know, he was someone who obviously had his issues with the church. He made his defense for why he believed the way he did, and he took a stand, um, which, you know, could have happened at any point in history. But I find it fascinating that right at the same moment, Gutenberg's invented the printing press, which makes access to information and books mm. and publication w- widespread. Because of that, Luther translates the Bible into common German. Literacy rises. People read the Bible for themselves. And then there's this massive explosion. Now, let me posit this. Do you think that maybe some of the things that are happening in evangelicalism right now with deconstruction and with reconstruction are happening, maybe not because of, but have exploded in the way that they have because of the technology transformations, especially of the past 10 years. With the internet, with blogs, with self-publishing, with things like this, with podcasts, with YouTube, with social media. Not saying it's to the same magnitude, but it's just an interesting thing to think about. I mean, I think you're getting on to something because, I mean, think about, like, Billy Graham in the 19, like, 50s and 60s and 70s. Like, he was all over the radio. He's all over TV. Yeah. And that's what exploded this idea of, like, this, like, rebirth, like, this revolution of Christianity. Yeah. And... The... the uh, 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 What do they call it? A great awakening. Yeah. I mean... Because he used the technology of the time to... You spread his message. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point because now it doesn't take me being present at church to go to church with how much technology is. And so... That's another... We should have that in an episode. That should be an episode right there. Yeah, but think about, like, if I don't have to listen to the worship band, if I'm not distracted by, like, the visuals and the stage design and all that kind of stuff, like, think about how much more I can, like, level in on what they're saying. Yeah. So I think that attributes to some of it too. I think you're on to something like the technology of today is definitely playing a role in the spread of 
this deconstructionist information that I can Google something and get the same answer as if I like think I'm going to pray about it for weeks on end. Like the, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, we don't like the idea of waiting for God to like, like work with us. And so therefore it's easier to just deconstruct on the internet. Yeah. I think that's part of it. And then there's, I mean, we've talked about this before, but the other utter lack of not wanting to reconstruct. Yeah. Because it's too much work. To to your point about church, though, something that uh, something Jeremy said the first time I ever went to center that uh, that has struck with me ever since he ever since the moment he said it, uh, he said he said if you can find the best sermon you've ever heard on a podcast or on YouTube, and you can find the best worship music you'll ever hear on Spotify or on YouTube or on the internet somewhere. And he said, he said, if you can do all those in isolation by yourself, then I think we're proving to ourselves that those things don't make up church. Yeah. And that's what was so impactful for me about Center itself was like the community, not just the teaching or not just the way they did worship, but it was the community aspect that you felt when you walked in there. You were like, Wow, I'm I'm part of something. Like this isn't just like, oh yeah, the band's great mm. or the message is great. This is like, no, no, no. This is family. And like, I think a point well made. Like, yeah, you're right. We we have more access to anything than to we have more access to more things than we can imagine right now, and more opinions about everything than we can handle. But I think also, you're speaking to some of the negative things too about what's going on with the technology revolution in terms of church and deconstruction because it's easier to just listen to somebody. It's easier to listen to a liturgist and bad Christian than to, you know, have a prayer meeting on Thursdays or whatever. Right. You know, um, that's just a little more safe. It's a little more comfortable. Um, and I think, like, think about, like, the pseudo community we have on Instagram, on Twitter, like we think that like because we're on Twitter and we're tweeting about a certain issue or we tweet, you know, we Instagram our Bible study and people are like, yeah, I really like that. Like we think that is a good supplement to actually going to church yeah, with common believers. I don't even like, but I don't even like going the phrase, maybe this is like showing how... <sighs> how my thoughts have changed, but I don't even like saying going to church anymore. It's like, we talked about this last night. Like we have a really, or I have a really good friend, um, who was like, we, we aren't going to church. We're loving being the church. Right. And it's, it sounds kind of hokey, but it's like, when you sit and think about it, you're like, wow, I, I don't want my church to just be something I go to. You right, know, I, I want to be it. Yeah, I want to be it. I want to be involved. I want to be, and not just involved. I want it to like be a part of me. Like I want to be, right. You know, in that community. I don't just want to be like, oh yeah, I go to church at such and such place. You know, three times a week, and yep, that's my church. Um, I don't know. It's, and it's really interesting. But I think something that's good that's happened because of 
this technological revolution is that people are asking questions about I think it's this kind of the same thing is happening where it's like so many people grow up in certain environments and with certain things that are taught to them their whole lives and then they hear someone question that and they go oh my gosh you can actually ask that question right and I think that is one of the now again just like with Luther there are some things that have happened because of that that are sad to see or that are downright bad, but it's just like, I think that's good. Yeah. I think the willingness and the openness and the honesty to question a lot of these things um, has lended itself to, I mean, we've talked about this before, but just like, just the pressures on churches because no one's attending like they used to. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I just, uh, our buddy Will the other week, you know, even said to me, he's like, dude, what is the church going to look like when we're 40? And I looked at him and I said, dude, I have no idea, but I'm excited. Yeah. Like I, you know, what did you say to me last night? You're like, yeah, I'm kind of convinced that a uh, small church churches not over like 30 or 40 people is the way to go. Yeah. And so I think part of like this, part of the revolution, you could say there's, I don't want to go so far to say like there's a second reformation, but I think we might be in the beginning of that. Right. In the first stages. Because people are are starting to ask questions about stuff that's hasn't been asked for a long, long time. Yeah. I think that's a good place to stop. All right. Well, this has been the uh, Belfast Podcast Episode 3. I've been Dimitri Lash. Luke, sign them off. Yes. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. You can also find the Belfast Podcast on Instagram and Facebook at the Belfast Podcast. And you can email us um, at belfastpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you very much. The air miss with the burger. I want to sprite. Coppin' at seven, I keep the bacon right. Late at night, me and my dudes chillin' at Freddy's. We act a fool and really we gettin' ready for that hard week. Y'all speakin' the superstition. Y'all reach for the seats and my cup drippin'. Fill the ceiling, stop by the